This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hello. This week, we have the Golden Globe nominations and the Critics' Choice Award nominations. Uh, it's been a busy couple weeks for things getting nominated, but these are just two large televised award ceremonies that come before the Oscars and have a whole slew of names on all of their lineups. So we'll talk about those, and then we'll talk about a, a little movie called Avatar The Way of Water, which is out this week. By the time you listen to it, it might have made a billion dollars. The future is really, uh, <laughs> the sky is really the limit on that one. Um, but let's talk about the Globes and the Critics' Choice Awards. As we record this, the Critics' Choice are the newest ones. And uh, as usual, the Globes and Critics' Choice have a fair bit of overlap. I mean, I think you see the favorites that we've been talking about over and over again, like Everything Everywhere All at Once, Manchester Ben Sharon, Fablemans, all performing really well. Um, but maybe start with the surprise of the morning for me and for the Globes as well is that Babylon is really hanging in there, even after some kind of mixed response from those early screenings um, that you guys have been talking about. Um, am I the only one who was kind of like, wow, good for you, Babylon, this morning? I don't know if I felt good for you, but <laughs> it, it, it certainly felt like, okay, you know, this is a movie that is big enough and star-packed enough and about Hollywood enough and made with, you know, the prop, you know, cinematography and a big score and all that. Like, it was probably going to register at a certain point. You know, it yeah. might not be the critical darling of the season, but like, I mean, the Critics' Choice Award are critics, technically, but like, you know, in terms of the Globes, um, that's a different kind of awards body. And I would assume that Babylon will work similarly well on at least a segment of the Academy. I was thinking about this late last night because I know we're going to kind of figure out our own top 10 picks. And I think it's going to make it into the Academy's Best Picture. Mm -hmm. I I really, the more I thought about it, I feel like a lot of people are going to reward it for its effort. Yes, there are things that don't work, but I'm not surprised with the Critics' Choice nominations. And I feel like we have to take it more seriously as a an actual Best Picture nom. Yeah, I both agree with you. And I think that what we've seen doesn't necessarily say too, too much. The Critics' Choice nominated 11 movies for Best Picture. Uh, <laughs> Why limit yourself, David? <laughs> 10, 10 directors, um, which Damon Chazelle did make that cut. And then over in, in the Globes, it, it did have slightly easier terrain of competing in, in the comedy categories. 
But also, since our last recording, AFI came out and didn't make that 10. They're pretty good with um, overlap with the Oscars Best Picture lineup. They usually only miss one or two American movies at most. Last year, they missed zero. So, you know, I don't think it's locked in or anything. Um, but we really are talking about 12, 13 movies at this point fighting for one of those 10 spots, I think. Um, and it's in that, you know, back half. <laughs> but yeah. it's very clearly there. And that's that's my takeaway from at least these two award shows and what they said about Babylon. I think that's been my takeaway too, somewhat less surprisingly for Top Gun Maverick, um, which won the NBR award for top film of the year. I honestly can't even remember if we recorded before or after that happened last week. Um, it was on the AFI top 10 as well. And then it's kind of shown up uh, all over the globes as well as the Critics' Choice Awards. Um, I, I felt pretty confident that it was going to get into a Best Picture 10, but, you know, it gets six Critics' Choice nominations. Tom Cruise gets a Best Actor nomination, um, even though he didn't at the Globes. It's um, it's the, the giant movie of the year, uh, save Avatar, I think is going to be in there pretty solidly. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, Cruise is also getting this PGA honor um, that was announced last week as well. So I just feel like... And I was at an event last night, and a, and a couple of people were very sure it could even win Best Picture. So I, I definitely feel like that movie is is going to do really well as we move forward here. And the door has now been opened, you know, and sometimes that's what it takes. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. um, permission has been given that the Academy will not be scoffed at <laughs> if they nominate certain people or certain movies because other awards bodies have done the same. Um, and I think that that always uh, is a big deal for a campaign, even if ultimately the particular award shows, we have no idea what stature the Golden Globes is going to have this year. Like, mm-hmm. I saw people remarking upon the fact that, like, very few emails from publicists saying, this is my client's reaction to their nomination went, went out on yes. Golden Globes nomination morning. Almost none. Like, Almost I'm, none. I'm still kind of stunned by how silent that yeah. was. Um, but even so, it's on a website, it's on Twitter that such and such movie, such and such actor were nominated for one of these two things or both of these things. And, and that um, that paves the way. Yeah, David and Rebecca, you guys kind of wrote up the question of is the Golden Globes comeback real and mentioned that lack of response from reps, even though there were, you know, people like Viola Davis kind of put thank yous or, you know, notices on the social media. Um, a few days after that, does the Golden Globes comeback feel real? I mean, stars tweeting out, they <laughs> were nominated for something. They'll do that for like, a regional critics award. I don't think it's that different. <laughs> the Oklahoma Critic Association. Yeah. No offense to the Oklahoma film critics. Absolutely no offense. Um, honestly, I would love for Viola Davis to cite her impending Oklahoma critics nomination. <laughs> now, um, it's it's just it's not the same, and you cannot deny that there's a huge difference from the way that those nominations were treated three years ago versus now. It's yeah. just not the same at all. Even in L.A., you quite literally could not watch the nominations live stream, which is a big shift, honestly. And yeah, NBC, because they air live on the Today Show on the East Coast, but on the West Coast, it was 530 in the morning. <laughs> but NBC controls that. NBC has a one-year contract. I don't know that that's the best show of faith. Um, they didn't make it much of an event. Um, they didn't make it a national event, period. And... To Richard's point, though, I don't think that means the nominations are meaningless, and that's where the divide is, is this group has always been weirdly reasonably good at, you know, matching Academy tastes, minus their very (laughs) notable outliers, (laughs) which happen every year and I think also happened this year. And that seemed to be true because their tastes, clearly with the expansion of membership, didn't change that much. They maybe got a little less insane, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is good for them. Uh, maybe not as fun for us. 
But I I don't know. I mean, we'll see who goes. I think plenty of nominees will go. I think more nominees than usual will not go. It could be a more similar turnout to what we see for Critics' Choice Awards. Um, Interesting. Yeah, that's a like that's a good um, comparison. I think because Critics' Choice gets most everybody, but not necessarily right. everybody. And Critics' Choice will be on. A Sunday, right? And the Golden Globes are on a Tuesday. Yes, the Golden Globes are on the Tuesday before Critics' Choice. So they get to go first, but Critics' Choice has more of the traditional, um, you know, Sunday night award show slot. Yeah. The the last thing I would say is I felt like with the Golden Globes, what they didn't recognize, it helped the movies that they did not recognize almost more than what they did recognize in some ways. It's, It's a good boost of visibility for Daniel Deadweiler when everyone's like, why didn't they nominate Daniel Deadweiler? Because the Globes Mm. have no overlap with the Academy. It doesn't actually say anything about what the Academy's thinking, except maybe there's not enough visibility for that movie. And in some ways, a snub helps with that more. And same for, you know, the women-directed movies, Women Talking, The Woman King. It reminded me a little bit of when Little Women was snubbed by the Globes. And more of a groundswell around that movie did develop after that. It was obviously widely critically acclaimed, but um, it ended up doing really well at the Oscars with six nominations. Um, And it seemed like the real campaign started when the Globes, ironically, did not um, treat it very well. So those kinds of things can actually help in a weird way. Although, do you not see it also as a huge boon to Anna Darmus and Blonde for getting that Globe nomination? I don't know that it makes her, like, likely to be an Oscar nomination, but that's a boost in visibility, too. Eh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's so that's that's what that's so globesy though i mean it's yeah. very globesy that's globes gonna globe it maybe even cruelly keeps the flame alive when it shouldn't be like it should have been mm. gently snuffed out and like now there's still there's like that that dumb and dumber so you're saying there's a chance <laughs> <laughs> uh, i don't know if there is i'm curious about the globes being on a tuesday night so the the plan is it's going to be during commercial breaks of the voice right they're just gonna yeah yeah run, so. dash out a few awards before they have to <laughs> go back shelton to, is actually the yeah. shadow host of this award <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was interesting that um, Women in Film released a statement after the Globes noms came out about there being no female directors and and sort of how much work there still is to do. Because I think that's exactly what you're saying, David, is, you know, while these the Globes may not matter so much, I think people who are voters of the Academy go, oh, yeah, that would be kind of shitty if there were no Mm -hmm. uh, women in this field and maybe pay a little more attention to the very deserving female directors that are in this race. Um, So I think that's a really good point that maybe it is the the ones that miss that might get the attention that they deserve and, and haven't been. I do think the Globes and the HFPA have shifted like at least one degree less nuts because I was yes. like, Julia Roberts, where you're coming for uh-huh, Ticket, to, Ticket Paradise, to Paradise or Harry yeah. Styles, like I expect to see you. And and so they've at least stepped like one step to the to the right of uh, away from crazy. But um, yeah, I mean, we still saw a lot of those sort of showy nominations. So I think it'll be a question of who shows up. There's a lot, it feels like there's still a lot of wait and see, like no one wants to be the first person to release a glowing uh, acceptance statement. So um, I think, you know, we don't have much longer to wait. And and David and I, I think we'll get a better feel for it being in the room. Mm. The female director thing, I I think Gina Prince-Bythewood would be the one who I would maybe see to show up in there because we talk all the time about how the director categories go for like huge, big spectacle and the Globes director lineup. The Globes director line, if you got James Cameron, The Daniels, Baz Luhrmann, Martin McDonough, a little, you know, less on the spectacle side of things with that movie so beloved, and then Steven Spielberg, like, it's, 
we've had women in the Best Director Oscar lineup the past two years. I would like to keep that streak going. But, like, I don't think that it is some crazy sexist oversight that it's not happening. Like, the competition in the field is just different this year. Oh, I don't I don't disagree. And actually, to that Little Women example, it's not like the Oscars nominated Greta Gerwig for Best Director. Yeah. But I think it helps the overall visibility of the movies. Um, sure. And it, it, it put, keeps them in the conversation in a sort of backwards, ironic way. But I, I agree with you. And, you know, regardless of merit, I mean, I would put Sarah Pauly in my personal lineup. I think what she does with that movie is really special. But I also think that regardless of who directed Women Talking, although it is called Women Talking, but whoever directed that movie, <laughs> uh, it is it is not of the kind of style that typically the director's branch goes for. So I think that we always have said that that was going to be more of an uphill climb than others have said, maybe. So that's, yeah, that's not a surprise to me. Um, well, I guess we should talk about The Woman King missing Critics' Choice, because uh, they nominated 11 movies, and that was not one of them. Although Gina Prince-Bythewood did make it in, in the 10 director yes. uh, field, which is really something. Um, yeah, that is odd. I mean, RRR made it into the Critics' Choice 11, which I would not have seen coming. But I think we've said a few times that movie just kind of keeps chugging along. Um, yeah, that's a shame. It feels like it belongs with all of these other spectacles. Yeah, I, I think the one area where the Critics' Choice are really useful is they do nominate, you know, they do all the craft categories. And so they nominated Nightmare Alley, but then you also saw it had a lot of, you know, craft nominations. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by The Woman King not really getting any outside of costume design. And that feels like something that could repeat as the industry starts weighing in, in a negative way for its chances to crack Best Picture, because movies like Babylon and Avatar and Elvis, um are really doing well below the line and yeah. will do really well below the line. And that helps their chances of getting into Best Picture, as it did with, say, Nightmare Alley. So that was definitely something I, I noticed. Well, here's where I get to the frustration where The Woman King, it, it, as you watch it, you can feel that it is a movie that deserves to be much bigger than it is and is working with a, a smaller budget and COVID delays and all this stuff. And you see Babylon, which seems to have had just like a, a vault of gold bars to throw at whatever <laughs> it wanted to do. And... You see that difference in the awards nominations, too, which I think is really unfair because what they managed to do with The Woman King with the resources they had is pretty spectacular. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. 
Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. David, you mentioned how Critics' Choice nominate all the craft categories. They also nominate uh, six actors per category. Um, although, you know, the Globes has the musical or comedy, too. So they they tend to have a good number. Um, so I don't know that it tells us a lot about, like, whether Austin Butler or Colin Farrell is pulling ahead because they're both in there. But I do think there are some people you can either say they are solidly in the conversation or they are solidly not. Mine is Paul Mescal. The Critics' mm-hmm. Choice Best Actor looks like a likely Best Actor Oscars But list, someone's right? going to fall out. If there's six. No, it's right. Minus, minus. Paul, minus oh, Paul yeah. Mescal. Oh, yeah. I see. I yeah, see. yeah, yeah. Yeah, because that's the little critical darling. And then the other five, Butler, Cruz, Farrell, Fraser, Nye. Nye was always kind of the, like, question marky fifth slot, I think. Um, maybe Cruz was more of that, actually. But now that, again, the, that road has been paved, I feel like he's got a good shot. And people seem to be watching Living uh, and liking him in that. It's a great narrative. Older actor, beloved you know, never been nominated before. Um, so yeah, that that does feel sort of interestingly sewn up. I'm also curious about Curtis and Stephanie Hsu yeah. both being nominated for Everything Everywhere. Um, the big question is like, well, two big questions have been, if Jimmy Lee Curtis gets in, does that mean she wins? And does Stephanie Hsu get in at all? Which, you know, arguably she had, the, I mean, she does have the bigger role, the more complicated role, because she's kind of playing two characters. And there was some worry that she wouldn't be recognized for that. And so far, so good, it looks like. Yeah, I, I kind of think they did women talking a favor here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because the Globe snubbed both of them, uh, Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley. And Jesse Buckley has emerged with Critics Awards and is kind of the one who's edging Claire Foy out, the, the clearer play. And them nominating her here and not Claire Foy, I think makes clear that she's their best shot of getting an acting nomination at this point. Um I think that movie is just so dispersed that it's it was it's it's quite difficult to settle on a favorite. Yeah. Um, but I think they have one to more clearly campaign right now if they so choose. With everything everywhere, I think it is a bit of a problem for Stephanie Shu that Jamie Lee Curtis is, to my mind, very clearly in at this point. She's gotten in everywhere. She's actually done better in the Critics Awards than Stephanie Shu. Uh, the Globes did not nominate Stephanie Shu, which is not a huge surprise. Um, but you know, it's always tougher when there are two, and. We saw with the Globes, they didn't nominate either of the the Fableman supporting men. Both of them made it in with the Critics' Choice. So it's it remains very confusing to me, like, of, with all these movies and these multiple contenders, like, multiple very worthy contenders, who the Academy will actually push over the finish line, because it's not like either category is thin outside of those movies. Um, and you're seeing in both of these nominations lists, those solo contenders, like, Angela Bassett and um, Brian Jean Terry Monet. Henry, Janelle Monet, um, pulling through over those like maybe more overall strong contenders with more to work with in these categories. Then also Barry Keegan, who we worried so long would be overshadowed by Brendan Gleeson, who's really the co-lead of Banshees. He keeps getting in. I'm yeah, really excited for Barry. <laughs> I think so Banshees is getting movie. four acting nominations. That seems quite likely. Uh, that's the exact, it would be the exact power of the dog lineup again, right? To supporting actor. I think that's what I said many months ago. I know, I know. I'm I'm quoting you back at you, David. I'm, I'm proud of that prediction. Um, Rebecca, I know you've been really on the worried about Stephanie Hsu uh, train. Did anything, does Critics' Choice make you feel any better? Are you still nervous? Um, it definitely, I think, helps her, but I, I mean, if you look at this group of six, right, I, I, 
feel like we can call Angela Bassett a lock now. I feel like when that film first came out, we weren't sure, but it feels like she's just getting mm-hmm. mentioned repeatedly and getting special honors and things like that. But I do, I wasn't sure about Janelle Monet. I guess I kind of was still viewing Glass Onion as sort of a question mark, but um, to me, it feels like if you had to predict one of these people not making, and I do worry that shoe is going to be the one that's cut, which is a real shame. So I think it's a, a good step for her, but we just have to see what happens. You know, I think it, it's definitely an uphill climb still. We should also add that Glass Onion got six Critics' Choice nominations. And like, you can see why that group would go for Glass Onion. Like Ryan Johnson, member of film Twitter, is going to be in the club there. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that means that, uh, you know, Janelle Monáe got an edge in that way. Um, I'm also, I mean, Dolly Leon got that Globes nomination, which I think we should mention. Um, you mm-hmm. know, they, they really went for Triangle of Sadness. Um, and I don't know how many other groups are going to go for that, but I'm you know, unlike with Anna Armas, where we're thinking maybe that like does shouldn't that conversation shouldn't continue. I really hope the Dolly De Leon one does. If nothing else, I hope Dolly De Leon has secured a spot on the White Lotus season three cast oh list. Oh my god! You yes. know, she wouldn't have to play the exact same character at all. She could play whatever. But like, yeah. I just feel like he said he wants to film in Asia. Dolly De Leon's from the Philippines. Like, I don't know. That, I want that her to be, be like fun. the rich, like you know, Hong Kong studio executive on vacation or something like that. Sure. Like, really, just flip the <laughs> yeah. role on its head. But yeah, like I, I would love to see her in there. Um, I don't know. The Jamie Lee Curtis narrative is still what's kind of captivating me because I'm just trying to imagine that speech. Um, <laughs> and like anecdotally on like Twitter, which I know, whatever, it's the Wild West, a horrible version of the, I mean, a, a even worse version of the Wild West right now. Um, but of the film people I follow and like the media people I follow, I saw so many people linking to, screenshotting, whatever, her actors on actors with Colin Farrell. Yes, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it just seemed to really be making the rounds in a way that some of the others weren't quite as um, visible, um, which is intriguing to me, because it seems like people are invested in that. And I wonder if, like, awards voting bodies are as invested in it as a sort of general the general public, seem, or at least my little narrow view of the general public seems to be. She's winning the Globe, right? Like, that's yeah. happening. I, <laughs> I so. don't see how the HFPA would resist that. The whole show will just be her speech because no one else is there. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the question about the Globes in general, right? So we don't we don't think it will necessarily be as heavily attended. Like, people aren't responding to the nomination in the same way. But does a great Globe speech have the same weight that it used to? Like, I, I can't imagine people who are invested in this not tuning in to watch, even if they don't right. attend. And then seeing Jamie Lee Curtis's like all over the place speech, we hope, um, and saying, "Okay, yeah, she's she's due." Um, that feels like that train can really start then and not stop. Yeah, we I, hope. I feel. Yeah. I feel like even if people don't tune in, voters don't tune in for the whole show. Those clips of the best speeches, especially something wild from like a Jamie Lee Curtis, will go around, and then that person is in the front of their mind. It just, it still, it still has some worth definitely to win that award i think and like could a tom cruise speech somewhere like either vault him into the front position or do a couch moment for him you know like yeah or could colin farrell give some lovely thoughtful lilting irish you know kind of summation of career in a way i know he's his profile has shifted since then but if you remember during the um once upon a time in hollywood like brad pitt was like really winning on speeches you know oh definitely and, and yeah. both funny and reflective and he chose reflective at the oscars funny at the globes and like you know i just think there is an art to that certainly and i feel like in colin farrell would be good at it tom cruise could potentially be good at it curtis who knows but it would be interesting um 
and you know that I think that does start to count a little bit. Although I said that around Glenn Close time, and then that look what happened. I keep thinking of Jane Campion's speeches, which was like so charmingly batty, and then she had the I think it was the SAG Awards where she just called out Serena Williams. Yeah, and then whoever like sat Jane Campion down after that was like, "Listen, let's not do this. I hope that Jamie Lee Curtis is talking to that person and can keep it batty, but not looping in other celebrities for no reason." Uh, That was a that was a stressful moment for all of us. Yes, it was. Um, the The other interesting, I suppose, element of like how far Glass Onion can go is you have the SAG ensemble category, yeah, which is coming up, and um, I, I remain kind of a skeptic on that movie uh, in terms of cracking the Best Picture ten. I, I feel like it's totally in it. It's in that twelve thirteen I mentioned, but um, you know, if I didn't list it in that, to me, was more telling than. Critics' Choice listing it to exactly your point, Katie, about this being a movie made for them. Or the Globes, again, putting it into comedy where it's a little bit easier to compete there and they did not nominate Janelle Monae. So um, SAG Ensemble feels like the next big hurdle for a lot of these movies, um, including like a Babylon, um, that are on the bubble. How does Everything Everywhere All at Once not win the SAG Ensemble in a in a walk? The, How that's... does it not win Best Picture? It's, <laughs> it's like, like it's ahead right now. <laughs> it really it's is. It's ahead. It's ahead. I mean, the Fablemans keeps performing. Like it, you know, it got I think the second most nominations, and it's not the kind of technical marvel everything everywhere all at once was. So you see why that tally would be different. I would absolutely assume everything everywhere all at once gets more Oscar nominations than the Fablemans in the end. Um, but you're right that it's ahead, and that's when we start to get nervous about something being too far ahead before all the award shows have started. It's just, it's more fun to talk about a film that was an underdog at the start, right? Like mm-hmm. the Fablemans felt so set up to to lead this race and that's not as fun to talk about. So I do, I do feel like that energy and that excitement around everything everywhere is, is going to just keep helping it win and earn these nominations. And that cast is so charming. I don't know. It does feel like they could win, but then you'll talk to one person that's like, really, a movie with butt plugs is going to win the best picture, and you're like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. So, it's, um, I don't know. It's so interesting. Well, Chariots of Fire won. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to talk about Best Actor because um, Richard, you mentioned Colin Farrell giving a speech like he gave a great Globe speech when he won for In Bruges a thousand years ago. Um, and I think I said this to David that the way I see it, Austin Butler wins the Globe for drama and then um, Colin Farrell wins for Manchies. I I suppose it could be Brendan Fraser. We You know, the whale is performing well at the box office when almost nothing else has. Um, but I still just have this big question mark about Brendan Fraser. Uh, he's hanging in there. But Elvis and Banshees are both really well loved and the whale is not. And they're not nominating Hong Chao. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of on his own. He's on an island with this movie. And yeah, with the Globes, are they going to vote for someone who has said he's not going to attend? who has described a pretty traumatic experience with a member of that voting body, former member of that voting body. And, you know, even if it's not a personal decision, you would want to vote for someone who is going to be there and will give you a great speech. So, you know, um, I I don't expect him to win the Golden Globe, which isn't the end of the world. um, He could very well win the Critics' Choice five days later. Exactly. And I think he that would be a big you know, big hurdle for him because the Critics' Choice is a big, you know, group and being able to rally around that as a consensus um, in this category is important. Um, but yeah, I 
I do think that this is a pretty fluid category and there's still a chance for another front runner to emerge. And you guys have been saying for months that he was just going to win it in a walk. And I've been sitting here wondering if that was going to change. And You have? I'm not going to say that I'm right because who knows what happens. But, um, yeah. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Okay, well, let's talk about a movie that performed very well with all the voting bodies we've been talking about, as well as the AFI Top 10 and the NBR Top 10. Avatar, The Way of Water is coming out this week. Richard, you've reviewed it. Uh, David and Rebecca, you've both been doing Q&As with the um, cast and crew and James Cameron coming in remotely because he has COVID. Um, but Richard, let's start with you with your review because you had told me you liked it. I think in your review you expressed like some measure of hesitation, but they kind of ended with, like, it is a good thing for culture that these movies exist, which I'm going to say, uh, I guess that was counted fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, uh, yeah, that I kind of kept deleting that little bit and then t- putting it back in because it was kind of it's a little joke. I mean, I don't know if, you know, Avatar franchise is good for culture, but like it's better than a bunch of amorphous Marvel movies that have all started to bleed together in the cultural consciousness. Like these are distinct things, not based on anything. And that's at least, you know, in these penurious times, would that, that feels something like different and good. Um, the movie sat really well with me. I'll say, you know, I, when I saw it, I was fully immersed, didn't have to get up to go to the bathroom was like really like locked in while also, sort of saying, okay, this is a lot of stuff about whales and, you know, what's the story here? And it turns out it really is a transitional movie. You know, it's much more of a setup for a sequel than the first one was. You know, the first one was a discrete story. It could have just ended there. We never go back to Pandora. Now we're in a position where like, okay, we got to see the next installment, you know? Um, Mm. And I, I, that at first bothered me, but then I realized that I'm actually genuinely excited for the next one. And I just felt the way that I haven't felt at a big spectacular all year, you know, um, not even Top Gun, which I liked, but didn't transport me in the same way. Um, so it was exciting. And I think that the people have figured out the motion cap, like it doesn't feel as stilted as it might have in the first one. There's a whole host of new characters, mostly the children of the Sully family um, who acquit themselves well. And there's a lot about the kids. So people should prepare themselves for that. Um, if they were just expecting like grown up Navi doing things well, it's a lot of teens and younger kids doing stuff. Um, but that kind of works because Cameron is making a sort of more for all of the technological advancement, the storytelling is a, is, is more old fashioned, you know, and it was oftentimes in these big spectaculars that there would be a kid character, at least who was sort of the, the eyes for the younger audiences. Um, and I don't know, I just, I liked all that sort of robust, old-fashioned epic stuff mixed with this technology that I'm still wary of, uh, and yet makes a pretty strong case for itself here. 
Yeah, I did a, a panel and John Landau, the producer, was on it. And he was saying that after the first Avatar, they had sort of a postmortem and with the entire um, crew and storytellers. And the one thing everyone said they hoped in the next one was for it to be a more emotional story. And I think they really pulled that off. I mean, I, maybe that's par- in part because a lot of them are more comfortable with the technology. Um, but it, I, I, I fell for that story they were telling, even though I went in um, a little apprehensive about, do we need another one of these? But I, yeah, they won. You me were like, really, you were like, oh my God, three hours. How, not, not yes. to call you out As here, but I, I feel like, because <laughs> I feel like I keep telling, you know, wanting to write off my opinion because like I finally remember the first Avatar. I was excited about this one, but I think your experience is more instructive for people who are like, did we really need another one of these? Because you really did not know if we needed another one. Yeah. And it was the fastest three hours I think I've ever had in a movie. I just like, 10 minutes in, I was like, you got me. Like this, It's just so <laughs> stunning and so beautiful. And then the story is captivating. So, I mean, yes, there are moments of the dialogue that are a little cheesy, but I think, and the storyline is not the most original, but I, I do think it it gives you what you want from a big blockbuster movie like this. So I agree. It, it really won me over. There's a process to watching the movie where... It starts and you're like, oh, yay, we're back. And then pretty shortly thereafter, you're like, oh, my God, there is a lot of exposition here, a lot of terms, a lot of mythology. And it starts to feel a bit silly, like you're playing a role playing game or something like that. And then the third phase of that is that you just sort of start to admire Cameron's just bold conviction to all of this. Like he really believes in it. He's really selling it hard, but not not aggressively. You know, it, it's he he just lets you get immersed in it and then it really works. And so I, I think I mean it sounds insane to say, but if the first hour hasn't sold you, just wait for the next two and a quarter. <laughs> uh and then you'll then you'll you'll get hooked or or maybe you will, um, like I did. And uh and the yeah, Rebecca, the emotional component really does work. You know, I felt by the end surprisingly invested in these characters who most of whom we just met, you know, um, and also are hidden behind layers and layers and layers of computer graphics or whatever. But I really felt tense fearing what I thought was going to happen and then felt moved by what did, you know, and uh, that's saying something. Yeah, I just think that that last hour, um, the, you know, the big action sequence, basically the entire ending of the movie, just like the first one. But it's there's a lot of water stuff that will remind you of Titanic, maybe. Um, and I think the emotional power of that, it is so visceral, even compared to the first one. Like, I just really can't imagine anyone who makes it to that part of the movie not being completely absorbed by it. It's also interesting because I did a I did a SAG Q&A, so I talked to the actors and one element that came up a lot was actually how loose and liberating the process of acting in this movie felt, which is quite contrary to, as they said, like the experience of acting in most movies of this scale, Mm. because it's, they described it kind of like theater where they're actually not, you know, needing to worry about coverage or worry about, um, you know, hitting the right camera angle or doing a million takes because they're basically, you know, bare bonesing it, um, in black suits and whatever, but, um, they, you can see just the, especially with Zoe Saldana, who I think is really amazing in this movie, um, the level of emotional commitment and intimacy between these actors and characters, it was kind of shocking to me. And I think there's a level of comfort that you didn't see in the first one between them. 
Um, probably just more comfort with the technology, with the process, you know, lessons learned from James Cameron, et cetera. Um, and was really crucial to why this movie worked for me because it, it sells it. It sells the emotional component. And that was not what I expected. Uh, so what's the vibe been at these screenings you guys have been doing? Are all the uh, SAG members, et cetera, sold as well? So what was interesting about mine was that the focus, and maybe it was because James Cameron was on a little TV screen, <laughs> but the focus <laughs> was so much on him. And, you know, it was, an, it was a screening full of actors. The majority of the panel were famous actors, Sigourney Weaver and um, Sam Worthington. But the adoration for him and the respect for him, because the movie just ended, um, was very clear. And something I'm thinking about as we talk about the directing race, because, you know, Steven Spielberg, I think, remains the front runner there, but James Cameron's a real force, and he is going to get a lot of folks in his corner, I think, for what he pulled off here. Yeah, I had sort of a opposite experience because um, my panel was the day that he, James Cameron, tested positive. So he was going to be on it until about three minutes before we took the stage, um, <laughs> which was fine. But I did think it gave, a, obviously, I had a million questions for him, but it gave... Um, it, it allowed me to pay more attention to the response to each of the crafts. You know, we had costume design, cinematography, editing, all there. And the the costume designer got a, a huge round of applause just in the middle of the panel. And, and it made me realize, like, it's going to clean up in crafts for sure. And, and it felt like there was um, a lot of them spent a lot of time just talking about James Cameron. But it, it's very clear how the insane amount of work they put in. I mean, most, the production designer made this water kingdom, like designed it in real world and in a miniature just to be created on a computer. You know, I mean, they, everything was made um, in real life. So it's just, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, we keep talking about everything everywhere and its pole position and best picture race, but I think it's a really different question in the director race. Not, you know, the Daniels really pulled off something amazing, but they're pretty new. Um, it just doesn't quite seem like the narrative is in place for them the way that it would be for Spielberg or Cameron. And um, mm -hmm. David, I think you might be right that it might really come down to to those two. And if you're like, if you're in the director branch that like goes for The Revenant or something like that, which of those are you going to go for? I don't know. I see an edge there. Yeah. And just to zoom back a little bit to what someone was saying earlier, um, it is amazing how many like big movies we're talking about in this Oscar race. Like Avatar, obviously mm -hmm. the big finish, but you know the majority of the Best Picture lineup is probably going to be pretty large scale, money making productions, and that's I think maybe a little contrary to the narrative that has been building, especially this fall, as these indies have struggled to find an audience. Um, that there are good. Oscar contending movies that have found a lot of eyeballs and that's that's nice. It's really needed, don't you think? Like it's been a it's been a rough box office year. The Oscars have had their own struggles. Like that's kind of the best possible scenario. Um we haven't mentioned Nope because it got blanked by the Critics Choice Awards very annoyingly. And um, the Globes, right? Yeah, I, I think so. Um but I I would say it's still very much a, a factor there. Uh it made over a hundred million dollars domestic, um, and would be yet another um good point in that favor. Mm -hmm. And it made AFI. Yes, yeah. And uh don't forget Kiki Palmer's still still out there in the hunt. If you know, after we had her conversation with Angela Bassett, if she if they both get a supporting actress nomination, I would be thrilled. <laughs> What happens if Avatar somehow doesn't do well? 
Richard. Oh, don't. I don't. Think, do I we have an entertaining that idea? I, I mean, just don't tempt fate. I mean, I don't know. I, I just, I'm, I, I, it's been 13 years, you know. I just, I'm wondering. And the whole rap about the original movie was like, it's the biggest movie of all time that no one ever talks about anymore, you know. And um, except Katie Rich. Well, sure. Yeah, I've been, you know, and they I've been did keeping re- that flame alive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the re-release was really smart, you know, because it it got it back in people's consciousness, and people wrote about it, and people saw it, and you know that that counts for a lot. But like, I don't know. I know I said the same thing about Top Gun, and I was so wrong. But like, and I don't have as I don't have a feeling about Avatar. I'm just sort of curious about what that would say and what the future would look like if this movie somehow. And I'm not saying it 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 tanks, but this cost a lot of money to make and market. And I'm just curious. I guess overseas, it'll do really well no matter what, right? Yeah. yeah and it has a it, huge China release, so it's kind of guaranteed to outperform almost everything just because it has that market and a lot of movies haven't. Yeah. So there's a way to spin it, I think, regardless. And, and 3D ticket prices are back in, in play, right? So like, Do we pay helps. more for 3D again? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I need to look, look into this as I buy my ticket. Um, yeah, I mean, according to Deadline, it's looking like it'll make $525 million in its opening weekend. Uh, global, not domestic. Um, and That's the more other than they make in a year. <laughs> Barely, but yes. Barely. <laughs> That's crazy. But the other thing about Avatar and Titanic, too, is that it's legs. Like, those movies both played because people went to see them over and over. They played through January. Um, and I I know that that's the play that they're going for this time. And Top Gun, too. You know, like, Top Gun did really well and wasn't a juggernaut until it just people just kept coming back to it. So, well. Yeah, nothing's opening huge. Like Black Panther, which I don't really think is in the best picture conversation at this point, but it didn't open huge, but it, you know, had a great Thanksgiving weekend and it's really had a great tale. And now it's, you know, definitely in that tier of it did really well and Marvel can be very happy and Disney can be very happy. Um, You know, Elvis is another movie that opens strong, but the amount that it made was definitely based on how long it found an audience. Same with Everything Everywhere. Um, and Top Gun, exactly. Um, we know Babylon's tracking pretty well. I worked on a story with Natalie Jarvey um, where we got a little preview of the tracking there. And that, to me, feels like another one that may not open huge, but you hear about some of the sequences in that movie and you want to go back and see what you missed. That seems to be the new play for a lot of these movies is sticking it out. Yeah. Babylon, I have mixed feelings about, but I would be thrilled if it really made a lot of money because I do think there's a lot of parts in that movie that you just got to see it for yourself. Kind of similar to Avatar. Like, go go check it out. Don't rely on the buzz because both of them will kind of surprise you in very different ways. So that does it for this week's show. We will be back next week for our last roundtable episode of the year, and we want to answer your questions. So please email us at littlegoldmen at vf.com. You can also find us on Twitter, which we'll talk about, but email might be the best way for us to keep track of it. Um, If you're emailing Richard and Chris Murphy with your White Lotus theories, um, please just come over to us with your Oscar theories. We want those just as much as we want to know what Quentin is up to. Um, As I said, you can find us on Twitter at HWD, and on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best reaction to Olivia Coleman's Golden Globe nomination goes to Richard Lawson. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> you come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper 
with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.